Hey, good morning, church. Pastor Mike here. I'm grateful to be with you. If you have a Bible, will you please open it up to Matthew chapter 9? We're in our series going through the book of Matthew, um, and we're going to be in verses 9 through 17. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 17. Uh, today, I'd like us to talk about greatness and power in the Christian life. We see a few different accounts of the life of Jesus here in chapter 9. Uh, chapter 8, he does some healing, he does some more healing, and he forgives uh, a paralytic of his sins early in the chapter, in chapter 9. And then uh, in our main text here, we see some just really interesting ideas about gospel truth. If I can just kind of like intro with a big idea, the essence of that joy, power in the Christian life, the greatness of the Christian life is through gospel belief. That's kind of the big idea. And through believing in Jesus and applying that to our lives and to the relationships and letting that truth kind of like resound in our minds and in our hearts, that's where life change comes from. So um, whereas it might be tempting for us to think of Christian belief as I put my stamp of approval on, I believe in Jesus, I have said it, I'm a baptized Christian, and then you move on to just working hard, really the joy of the Christian life is to take the reality, the truth of the gospel, and let it work in every part of our life. And this is what's going on with the Apostle Paul, for instance. He encourages us to do this a number of times. In Colossians 1.6, Paul writes, um, that the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Here, Paul is saying, there's a moment where you finally understood God's grace, and then it changed you. It's bearing fruit. It's causing something good to come out of your life. Why? Because you understood God's grace, gospel belief. In Colossians 1.9, Paul prays that we would understand. He says, I pray that the knowledge of God's truth will come to you in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. There's an essence of the Christian life that involves understanding, really wrapping our minds and our hearts around the gospel. The good things about the Christian life come through gospel belief. We need that to sit in our heart, to meditate on it, to apply it, to let it change our thoughts and our emotions. That's the goodness, that's the power, that's the greatness of the Christian life. And so we're going to now read in Matthew 9, and walk through the passage and see, okay, what is Jesus saying? And how does this lead us to a greatness in the Christian life and, and a renewed Christian life? If you're a Christian who is struggling right now, if you're a Christian who is feeling depressed or wondering, okay, God, where are you in the midst of my trials? Or um, this COVID-19 thing is lasted long enough that I'm just kind of like declining in my mental capabilities, my emotional health. I'm just feeling more and more distant from you, God. If that's you and you're a Christian, you're watching this morning, then pay attention to what it looks like to have that greatness renewed in your heart. What this passage shows us is that a renewed and robust faith in Jesus consists of three things. A new priority, a new proximity, and a new power. Okay, let's talk about a renewed life in Jesus. It consists of a new priority. The passage depicts, um, in shorthand, the calling of a tax collector named Matthew. If you look in verses 9 through 13, it says, Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told them. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner with, at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, the context is that Matthew was a tax collector 
and tax collectors were Jewish sellouts to the Roman government. They worked for the government. They were often corrupt people. They might have drawn some money from their job, but a lot of their income as tax collectors came from cheating and robbing, lying, and extorting people from their money. So these were the lowest of the low, the opposite of the Pharisees, the hated, the despised, the sellouts. That's a tax collector. Matthew was a tax collector at the tax collector booth when Jesus called him. Uh, Jesus calls him to a meal. And uh, just like today even, meals mean that you have an equality with someone. You're sitting across the table with someone. You're sharing food. You're pouring their drink in for them. There's something communal and equal and loving about sharing a meal together. You know this in your own life, and it's explained here even in the passage. And then when the passage uh, that we just read says sinners, um, there were two types of sinners according to the Pharisees. One type of sinner would have been a Jewish person who just doesn't accurately hold up the strict law of the Pharisees. They were referred to as, quote-unquote, sinners. The second group would have been sinners that everyone who was Jewish and believed in the biblical God thought were sinners. These are obviously sinful people. Grievous sinners, the most criminal and disreputable types of people in society. That's what one commentator put. And the types of sinners we're talking about in this passage are most certainly the second kind, the most disreputable. They have no respect amongst the Jewish society. Those are the types of people that Jesus is hanging out with and and sharing a meal with them. Here's the point. When we look at the calling of Matthew, we see that the Christian life starts with a call. And in fact, I would go as far to say from another of a number of other scripture verses that every single Christian's life in Christ starts with a call from God. Everyone who has really become a Christian has had a season of their life or a moment where, if I can just describe it quickly, a moment where they said, I want God in my life. Or a moment where they said, I'm a sinner. God is holy. I understand why I would not be entitled to an eternity with him. And yet it's good news that Jesus died on the cross for me to bridge that gap so I can have a reconciled relationship with God for eternity. There was a moment where someone said, Oh, that clicks with me. That rings true to me. I realize the depth of my sin, the height of his goodness, and the love that brought us together. Or there's a moment where you say, uh, I'm out. I'm just out of trying. I'm just done. I'm tired, and I need God's intervening work. Whatever it is, the call of God can, can be an invitation to a relationship, or it can just be, even in prayer or, or in times of thinking, a sense that God is intervening in your life from outside. Whatever it is, however it is, uh, whether it's a moment that you put on the calendar and said, I gave my life to Christ in June 2nd, 2003, or whether it was a season of life where you look back and say, it was in that season where I decided to follow Jesus. There is a a season or a moment in the life of every Christian where they say, yes, God changed me in that moment, and I, I repented. Now, this kind of flies over and against the culture of Christianity that might say, because I'm American, because I'm moral, because I'm middle class, because I come from an Anglo background or something like that, then I guess I'm Christian or grandma was Episcopalian and so I guess we are too. There's a difference between those two things because what we're seeing here illustrated with Matthew is that the Christian life starts with a call. Someone saying, okay, Jesus, I want to, I need to be saved and follow you. A renewed Christian life also consists of a new proximity. We have a proximity issue because we can't be close to one another. 
COVID-19 meals have been very difficult because I think when we read a passage about Jesus sharing a meal with someone, and if you are single or you live alone or you're in a situation where you can't have meals with the people that you care about and really support you in life, you probably sense that like there was something really powerful about that meal together that you're missing. Or on the other end of it, some families have been locked in the house together and they're able to talk more, there's less distractions, the parents know that their teenage kids have nowhere else to be and so there's no other excuse, there's no other homework that's important to get through. And so families are having meals together and realizing, whoa, this is kind of nice, that this is an excuse for us to, to eat together, to share together. The proximity thing is just a, a powerful thing that is thrown kind of out of whack and something unique that's going on during the the pandemic that we're going through right now. And in verse 12, it says, On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. That's such an interesting statement. Go and learn what this means, he says. And then he quotes Hosea 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. What does this mean? What does Jesus mean by saying, Hey, go do some homework on this. And I'm I'm just going to throw a quote out here for you, Pharisees. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Discuss. Well, the Pharisees were worried about proximity. And we know from context that the Pharisees thought that um, if you spend time around someone who is unclean, spiritually unclean, uh, physically unclean, if they have a disease, then the unclean person would otherwise make a healthy person unhealthy. That's just normal germs. That's just what's going on in our world today. That physically, an unhealthy person, if they spend time around a healthy person and they have germs, they will spread the unhealthy germs to the healthy person and a healthy person will become unhealthy. That's just normal. Well, we know that religious people always do that. Like even just from history or even in your own life. To the extent that we have earned our salvation to the extent that our identity as Christians even is achieved, if we think it's achieved and not received through the the gift of grace from God, then we're going to do the same thing that the Pharisees do, where we draw a line between good and bad. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. We do it even today. They said, those people are unclean. We are clean. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners. And in essence, what he's saying is you should value mercy over sacrifice. He's saying, I'm living out mercy here. Mercy, of course, in the New Testament concept is not just grace, not just kindness, but a material love for people who are different, who are unequal, a material care and a gift to someone. That's what mercy is in the New Testament to people who disagree with you about sexuality, disagree with you about politics, disagree with you about what's right and good in the world. That's mercy. And Jesus says, I think I'm going to throw out this quote from the Old Testament. Hey guys, think about this. I desire mercy not sacrifice. Now, Hosea still valued the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. We're not throwing out that system. It's a a Hebrew idiom. It's a Hebrew saying that emphasizes the X, the first uh, variable, and de-emphasizes the Y. There are a number of statements in, um, in the Old Testament like that. Jesus is saying mercy is more important, if anything, than sacrifice. I uh, did some research online of all the things that uh, everyone's posting right now. Uh, how, how can you catch the coronavirus? What are the dirtiest things that would most likely catch? And there was even a CDC update that came out um, this week. 
I found that um, one of the dirtiest things that you ever touch, I, I shouldn't even mention this, it's just going to make us paranoid, but when you get back to normal life, this is going to be important especially, but the armrest of an Uber cab is uh, one of the dirtiest things you can come in contact with because you don't think about cleaning it, you don't think about where you put your arm, you just throw your elbow on the, on the armrest. And so the armrest, from now on, you can just uh, sit in the middle seat, maybe, in the back and avoid the armrest of an, a cab or an Uber. Um, uh, I saw a list that ABC News listed the airplane bathroom as the dirtiest, most germ-infected thing you can spend, you can touch, duh, if you've ever been. Uh, uh, surprisingly, yoga mats, to, uh, phones, purses, um, those are all things that tend to have the most germs that you come in contact with in a given week. The point is that in human history, every other time an unclean person was around a clean person, the clean person became unclean. But Jesus is the antidote. Jesus is the cure. You know, there's a lot of talk right now with, uh, on the news about, is the cure worse than the disease? Is our reaction to the coronavirus going to be worse than the virus? And then people are kind of like combative about that in our obviously divided culture right now. Uh, whatever it is, this might sound trite to you. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the cure. The gospel working in us is the source of justice but also the source of equality, the source of identity joy, like identity forming joy when God calls us and brings us into his life. I, I want to go on a tangent just for a second while we talk about proximity. Um, the tangent is this, that oftentimes we think that the beliefs that we have about God are, or even the, the meaning that we have in life and the decisions that we make about our lives, we think that those are all individual free choices. I mean, like a lot of us, uh, default on saying that my identity is something I freely choose. And actually, that's kind of a cultural belief that's very popular today, that you shouldn't let anyone tell you what to do with your life, with your body, with your identity. You should freely choose that for yourself, and that's how you'll reach kind of true humanity. That's how you'll discover your true self. We all think that we've come to our conclusions in life independently, and yet, if you, when you go to a state college, you tend to leave state college with state college-type beliefs about philosophy, science, God, and sexuality. And, if, um, and even one of the main objections to Christianity has, I, I've heard people say, well, of course you're a Christian. You live in America. And if you lived in the Middle East, you'd be Muslim. And therefore, your beliefs aren't as valid as you think. And of course, no one stops enough to kind of turn that cynicism on themselves to say, maybe the reason I'm so skeptical is because I've grown up in a post-Christian era in 2020, maybe because I'm a college-educated person who esteems other people, or um, maybe people who are scientifically minded would say, everyone I know is not a Christian. Maybe that shaped the fact that I just kind of roll my eyes when people talk about Jesus. We, we don't ever turn the cynicism on ourselves sometimes. Uh, whatever it is, actually, it's kind of an equal playing field between what you might say, religious people and non-religious people, because it's an equal playing field. We all tend to adopt the beliefs of the people that are around us, the people whose approval we seek. And like I said, if we want a renewed life in Jesus, the, the power of, and greatness of life that we all long for, we need a priority, a new priority, a new proximity, and a new power, and that's what the gospel of Christ gives us. When I said that the identity in Jesus Christ that we have as Christians is not received, I'm sorry, not achieved, but it's received, what, partially what I'm describing is that some of the problems with the Pharisee was that they felt they achieved their religion, and they're quizzing Jesus, why aren't you acting good on our rule with this? Why aren't you acting good with this other thing? Why aren't you guys fasting? 
Why aren't you guys more humble in our definition of being humble, being religiously um, observant? Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Those are achieved identity goals. And Jesus is explaining something about how our identity in him is received because it's a call, it's a grace that comes into our lives. Well, the divided culture that we live in today is the product of that fragile identity that is achieved and not received from God's grace. The problem with our society is that it's not just that people are so different and that the world's just like bipolar these days. It's that both very religious people and very irreligious, non-religious people have an identity that is achieved and not received by God's grace. And you might even see this, like on the news, if you flip between the different news channels, or if you see it on social media and the way people are kind of like swearing at each other and fighting with each other about every little cultural thing, and everything is a cultural battle these days because it's so polarized, because everyone's got their own identity, and they have to, hear this, they have to perform with their definition of justice, their definition of equality, their definition of freedom, because if I'm the right one, if I'm holding down the fort on the right way to live by these things, then I'll finally feel righteous. And anyone else who is a tax collector or a sinner, anyone else who doesn't define things the way I define them, is, is out. And we should not have meals with them. We shouldn't have equality with them. We shouldn't, they, 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 aren't, they don't deserve the time. Don't give them a platform. Everyone has, on both sides, everyone has their own achieved identity that is brittle, it's fragile. You always have to keep it up. Like, on the right side of things, on the religious side of things, you might say, there's people who are traditionally sinful, and they don't have a biblical sexual ethic. They, don't, they, they cuss, they swear, they, um, they drink, they, they have um, looser views on, um, on sexuality, drugs, etc., and so the religious group tends to look at them and say, they're the problem with the world. They're out. We're in. We're observant. And then the, the more irreligious folks, maybe the secular folks, the, the, the more liberal folks, what, however you'd say it, tend to look at the conservatives and say, well, we're the open-minded ones. You're the closed-minded ones. You're what's wrong with society. Or you're moralists and you're uh, self-righteous, and that's the problem with society, that you're denying those things, or you don't emphasize the things we emphasize in justice and equality, and so you're the problem. And both sides are trying to keep up an identity to say, we are doing the right deeds, and that's what makes us righteous, and you are the problem. Well, Jesus has a different message here. He's eating dinners with these people who maybe they don't have their life together, but uh, in following Jesus, Matthew is exhibiting humility. So maybe the righteous, quote-unquote, are not the ones that will be called. Maybe Jesus came to call sinners, quote-unquote, and in saying that, righteous should have quotes, sinners should have quotes, because Jesus is saying, I've come to call the humble. I've come to call the people who are willing to admit they're sinners, who are coming from the left saying, I can't live a sustainable life. I can't do it. I want to, but I can't do it. I want to fight for racial justice. I want to fight for equality, but it's a, lousy, it's a great fight, but it's a lousy source of identity. Jesus, I need you to save me from my good deeds. And actually, if you're coming to Jesus from the left, then you would say, I want to go back and fight for racial reconciliation, back with my new identity as someone who's loved and forgiven and cherished by God. And with that freedom to say, I'm now going to go fight for the things that are godly in society. 
Or from the religious side of things, you might say, I'm gonna, I can't keep up these religious deeds. God, I need, to, I need you to save me from my perfection. Humble me, God. Help me to realize I am a deeply flawed sinner. I'm not any better than other people. And now be free to not destroy relationships with your self-righteousness. To not look down on other people because they're not as morally equivalent as you. They don't reach that same moral equivalence that you think you're at. And everyone comes to Jesus, humbles themselves before that standard. So Jesus is saying, it's not the open-minded. It's not the moralist. It's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. C.S. Lewis said um, in a chapter of Mere Christianity called Good Infection, he says, The Lord of the universe came into this world and became human in order to spread to humans the kind of life he has by what I call good infection. Good things as well as bad things, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near a fire. If you want to cool off and get wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them, the Lord of the universe. C.S. Lewis is saying, what's in Jesus himself is joy, power, peace, and eternal life. And you have to get near him. It's about that, that priority of him, that proximity to him, and the power of that salvation that is in him. We are wedded to him in the metaphor in verses 15, 14 and 15. We're married to him. Our life is married to him for all of eternity. And then I want to just close with this, that we are new wine in new wineskins. Jesus goes on to this metaphor. But in the end, the, the explanation is saying that in order to come to Jesus, to follow Jesus like Matthew does in the book or in, in our passage, you have to leave something to come have a new wine. So he goes with the metaphor. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunken cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Well, you might say, in essence, Jesus is saying, uh, you have to be flexible. If you're going to come to Jesus, there has to be a flexibility to say, Okay, God, I don't know what my life's going to look like. I want you. I want to be saved. I want to be changed by you. And so I'm going to be flexible. Pull me here. Pull me there. Let me be the patch that you have created me to be. Sometimes people will, will ask um, pastors even the question, um, I'm interested in Christianity. What is the Bible's view of sexuality or homosexuality or politics? And it's hard to explain the answer to that question sometimes because it's hard to even in so many words explain that that is largely an insufficient question. Because by asking it, you're saying, I'm interested in Jesus, but I have some things that Jesus cannot disrupt. And if God, uh, if God changes any of these things, then he must not be good. But where is that stated? Like You're coming to it with the presupposition that I know what's true and right in the world. This is my assumption. If God uh, d- disagrees with it, then he can't be good. And so I think pastors, even Christians, if you've had that question, you might do your best to respond to that question. But part of the response has to be, what if God disrupts all of your beliefs? What if God disrupts all of your things, but what he does inside you is like wine? What if it's a fermentation process where you're changing, you're going from grape juice to wine? And and part of that transformation in your heart 
produces a gas, it produces bubbling, it produces a new flavor, and some of it's sour, some of it's bitter, some of it's sweet, some of it's floral, some of it's hints of tobacco. I'm thinking of the last wine bottle I read the back of. It has hints of oak and and mahogany, and there's some complexity to it. Where it used to be sugary grape juice, but now you're something totally different. You would need to have some transaction, some transition, some sort of chemical reaction happen inside your heart in order for that to happen, if you were to be like wine. And if if that's the case, you would have to have a wineskin that was new, not old. Old wineskins are already stretched out. If you try and stretch them out again, they pop. New wineskins have some flexibility to them, and so that transaction process can happen. It can get hot and get cold and bubble up and reduce and expand. Whatever it is, You know in this metaphor that wine is better than grape juice. And uh, that's probably true even today, right? Like how many of you have spent $80 on a bottle of grape juice? None of us. Nobody goes grape juice tasting. But wine connoisseurs see, see beauty in tasting little bits of it. And then you're meant to like draw in a little bit of air with the wine. And then you make a face like, oh, I'm contemplating the beauty of this wine. Like... Hmm, you know, you have to look up, and that's what wine tasting is, and you, you swirl, swirl it around the grass, you put the hints on your nose, and then uh, you look at the price tag, and you go, there's no way I'm buying this bottle of wine. Or, or, or you might, I don't know, but that's wine tasting. There's, it's a complex process because wine is complex, and what if you have a low expectation of how God's going to work in your life, but he does something new in you, it bubbles up, it ferments, and then it produces something that's complex, but beautiful and altogether new. If that's the case, then you, you watching this on the internet, need to come to Jesus ready with a new wineskin. God, change me, flex me, shape me how you want. And then let him do that fermentation process in your heart. You, the point is, you're called to some, from something to something new that will change you. And that's my prayer for you for us, Ambassador Church, that we would be the kind of people who are fermenting, changing, uh, adapting, expanding, and letting God do that work. That is the adventure of the Christian life. And by nature, adventures are unexpected. They always start unexpected. You don't know where the plot will take you. You don't know where the resolution will come. And that's every book you ever read that's exciting. That's every movie you ever watched. Um, In Peter Pan, Wendy, Michael, and John are in uh, the upstairs room with no expectation of adventure, and then Peter Pan comes in. That's the start of an adventure. My hope is that your Christian life is that adventure where we come to him, we follow him, we don't know where he's going to take us. He changes us from the inside out. That's the journey and the adventure that we're on. The one thing we know from this passage is that God calls you, he's come to you. And even as you watch this video, you might have that sense like, okay, God, I'm ready to start this journey with you. That would mean that you're a a new Christian, that you're saying, I don't have everything figured out, but I have a sense of my desire to follow you, Jesus. That might be where you're at this morning. Or some of you might even be a Christian and you need a new level of proximity to Jesus that something about all this free time has proved to you finally that you don't prioritize spending time in prayer or in the Word because you have a little more free time now and it's still not happening. Maybe you need a new type of proximity to to look at your schedule, look at your desires and say, okay, God, um, help me to want more of you so that I can just be in proximity to your truth. 
Maybe you crack your Bible open this week, and before you do that, you pray, God, show me something new that is not my expectation about what I'm going to get out of this Bible reading. And then read and spend some time thinking about it over a cup of coffee and then pray. Or maybe you need to unleash the power of the free gift of God's love for you in your life today. Maybe you have to have a new and pray for a new sense of the power of the gospel and pray that God ferments something beautiful and new in your life. That's my prayer for us. Let's pray.